Hi, nerds. I'm Michael Moore, hosting this podcast for Dissecting Popular IT Nerds. I'm here with Michael Fauché, Director of Information Technology for Columbia Center for Translational Immunology. Welcome to the program, Michael. Did I say all that correctly, by the way? You did. You did. That was a mouthful. Thank you, Michael. It's good to <laughs> was, be here. I thought I was gonna uh, I was gonna fumble it up, so I'm uh, I'm actually pretty uh, pretty excited. I got it right. Um, yeah. Before we jump into our icebreaker segment, we usually do. I just want to take a second. Uh, to ask the question, what is translational immunology? Yeah, that's a good question. That's what I get asked most times because uh, the title of the center itself is a mouthful, as I said. So translational immunology is a means uh, by which um, multiple disciplines come together to try to find common solutions to myriad immunological problems. So let's say that um, we find a specific uh, research, um, um, a specific experiment that starts to uh, show effectiveness in, say, cancer research or cancer cells. Um, someone that studies diabetes or influenza may see that study and say, you know what, that's really interesting, and I think I can apply that to my uh, specialty here. So you can think of the Center for Translational Immunology with our principal investigators, or as I'll refer to them as PIs. Um, are kind of like vice presidents of a giant corporation. Everybody has their specialty, right? Maybe it's manufacturing or it's, you know, machine work or it's IT, whatever. We have specialists in influenza, cancer cells, um, uh, organ transplants. That's a big thing for us. So everybody kind of combines resources and, and forces and knowledge um, to try to find solutions to all these sorts of immune. That's, that's great. We're translate, gonna... to translate. Yeah, sorry. Translate no, okay. items from the from the bench, the lab bench, to the clinical spot. Oh, that's that's fantastic. We're going to pick back up on the other side of this icebreaker segment uh, and talk more about translational immunology and how it uh, relates to uh, to IT. Um, but it is now time for our icebreaker segment. We call this Random Access Memories. Uh, I ask a question, and then uh, you respond whatever comes to your head first, right? And your first question is: uh, You're in a meeting. And the CEO announces that they have a new company app and they look to you and they say, hey, what do you name it? Hmm. Man, you know, I had this problem in graduate school. I tried to, my, my, my capstone project was naming an application I came up with. <laughs> and uh, I had a hard time. I tried to be clever with it. Um, I would call it Oh, man. Nope, that's already been used. I was thinking Crown because the Columbia app is Crown. Yeah, that's a a good one. Yeah. Um, How about Feasel? What is it? Feasel. F-E-E-Z-L-E. I like it. You know why I I like it? (laughs) I don't know what that means. And it sounds really good and it's fun to say. So that's why I like it. Yeah, you always need something with like some, some some sort of fun hook to it, right? So, yeah. uh, did you feasel yesterday? Did you put it in feasel? Yeah, did you feasel? Yeah, yeah. Did you, you feasel? Can you feasel that for me? That's no. That's, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I actually think you got some. After this podcast, uh, after we get done recording this podcast, you better just go run and get that feasel name because somebody's going to from out underneath exactly. you. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> that was a good one. Yeah. I had a hard, I had, like I said, with my capstone project, I had the hardest time trying to come up with something clever that, uh, you know, combined uh, the two 
functionalities it did. So, I, no, I think you, I think you did that one right. All right, <laughs> so here's the next one: standing desk or sitting desk? Oh, sitting, sitting. You know, yeah. I had a standing desk uh, when I was younger, and as I get older. I just enjoy the chair. <laughs> <laughs> I do too. I, do too. I, I, I see you have a nice chair there. And I thought, yeah. uh, you know, I need a new one in my lab. And I was thinking, what can I get that's covered by the university? It's really comfortable. Um, I did try standing too uh, for a while and I got fidgety. Yes. And, uh, you know, I, I would find myself being pretty productive. But then there are times when I want to sit back and put my feet up on the desk and, and contemplate, just be more relaxed. Um, take my lunch break, put it on my chest and just kind of eat like I might be at home. <laughs> well, Definitely sitting. When, what I catch myself doing, regardless of, um, regardless of anything, I, I will actually get up to pace and talk if I'm talking or, or thinking anyway. Yeah. So yeah, it's like here. all that pacing, I'm going to come back and sit down. <laughs> so That's right. Yeah. And I find I actually pace and get up and when I'm working from home, like I am now more than I'm sitting. So I'm actively yeah. up and around and doing exactly what the doctors tell me to do. There you go. There you go. Uh, <laughs> what is the uh, funniest error message you have ever seen? Mm. Oh, sure you've seen your fair share of error messages. I have seen hundreds upon hundreds. Uh, you know, there was one. I can't remember exactly what it said. But it was from a Dell Optiplex GX260 back in the early what do we call them? The aughts? 2000 or so, 99, something like that. Yeah. Uh, and it, it gave the spurious message that didn't give you any information other than cannot proceed or something like that. But it wasn't even like, I, you know, error message, cannot proceed with the task you're running. It was simply, um, I cannot proceed, okay, or close or something. It was something, like one the, of those two options. That's like the 2001 Space Odyssey, how thing which was like i i'm sorry i cannot do that day right is exactly. that, uh, yeah <laughs> now it, it might have been a, if i remember correctly it could have been like a, a specific driver and in fact i think it had something to do with a microscope that we had we were using i was testing it on the, on the device um and it was just one of the most useless sort of error messages i'd ever seen fortunately i could work my way past it and then uh if i remember correctly roll back everything but yeah there was um there was no, there was no sense to it whatsoever. Yeah, so. ominous too. Just you can't proceed. I'm not going to yeah, tell you right. what, with what. Just don't proceed. <laughs> yeah, I just shut the lights off, yeah. close my door, and go home for the day. We're done. We're done. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's when you shut the laptop. I'll talk to yeah. you tomorrow. Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, nice job. Made it through the the random access memories. Um, I'm excited to talk about translational immunology. Uh, uh, it's all, uh, the way you described it—a coming together of the the minds from many different, um, you know, many different uh, studies and and departments and uh, and different pieces. This is exciting stuff. Uh, um, what uh, what drove you into this? Because when I when I researched uh, when I researched you, one of the things I found interesting was that in the in, in like in your earlier days uh you had been well i don't know if you had been a journalist but you at least trained to be a journalist and then you did, did. A pivot, right yeah i did yeah i was a journalist um i went to university to be an english major and uh this was up in massachusetts <clears throat> and i became a, a reporter for a local newspaper and then um 
a bunch of rock magazines around the Northeast and uh, New York, New Jersey, and then uh, some some pieces for the Boston papers too. Um, and then I remember we would get uh, news over the wire, right? And when originally it came in, it was kind of like a fax machine where we get pages and pages of items. And then uh, it was, I remember specifically, we had um, sort of a DOS box and I can't remember the application it was used, but I remember seeing the, the news that Jerry Garcia had died. Hmm. And so uh, I think we're talking 1995 or so. I think that's when he passed. And for that instant, I saw the writing on the wall and I said, wow, so information like this is going to start coming into news, uh, into, into newsrooms this way, which means that eventually the news is going to dispel itself out to the masses very sim- very in a similar fashion. And at that point at the university, I just started off with the internet, you know, the nation sort of, uh, uh, you know, um, chat groups and stuff, mostly about, I was, I was on one skiing, I was on one for ACDC, all these sort of things. All sorts um, of things. Yeah, so I started to um, learn graphic design and HTML, and then I, I had really no direction. I decided to go to night school to become a teacher, and in the interim, I met um, a guy who was running a machine shop who brought me in to work nights so I could make some cash punching machine uh, we're actually making server racks. I didn't even know what those were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Making server racks for EMC. And so he said to me, his name was Tom. He said, well, I know you've got some writing experience and I need a website. Do you want to learn HTML? So let me back up a bit. I was learning uh, Adobe uh, Photoshop at school. Mm-hmm. And then he sent me to learn HTML. And so I started learning that and I started putting a website together. And subsequently, our company it was called premier electronics but got purchased by a larger company called um apw and then they brought their own website on suddenly i had no i didn't have to do a website so he said well listen i need an it tech you want to parlay that into that i said sure i'd love to uh because i had taken some programming in fourth grade i had taken some uh you know basic and some fortran going way back at the university Fortran. And I found, yeah, um, yeah, right. It was great for computational stuff I was doing as an environmental science major. That was a whole other story. You rarely see the machine languages now. I mean, that's uh, that's pretty heavy stuff. And I remember it making a lot of sense, actually. And I felt really good at it. Of course, we had good instructors. Um, Anyway, long story short, uh, Tom and his network administrator, Doug, um, basically brought me under their wing and taught me everything there is to know about networking. I mean, we're talking from Windows NT and early exchange boxes to PBX systems, how to punch telephone lines, how to run Cat5 cables through the wall, and how to, uh, you know, actually do uh, uh, white, orange, orange, white, green, green, white, brown, brown, white, blue, blue. I can't, maybe I got that a little bit off, but, you know, setting up the the coax cables and all that sort of stuff for networking. and I, I just took it and ran with it. Um, and so there were, so during that, I, I had started, I was a journalist, and then I started to pair that back, became a consultant, I mean, a correspondent, uh, and then started doing, uh, I pivoted into interviewing bands and interviewing comedians and actors and such. But I really found that I had a knack for the IT um, world. Uh, and so when that company, dissolved 
I took a job, uh, fortunately enough, at Harvard Medical School and MGH and found myself being an IT support technician for uh, what was then called the Transplantation Biology Research Center. Totally by luck. I found my way uh, into this research environment um, that was invigorating. Um, there was, you know, a lot of discrete needs like there are now for like, just like uh, patients have discrete needs, researchers have discrete needs, mm-hmm. um, technologically speaking. So it was a challenge to try to find solutions for everybody, but also maintain a sort of a, a you know, a cogent network uh, under the Mass General slash uh, Harvard environment. Well, we um, have... We we have some questions for you specifically when it comes up to this R and D uh, uh, pieces with this healthcare and because I I know the folks are itching to understand how uh, you know healthcare R and D ties in with uh, computing. Um, I I have uh, had a small stint where I was supporting uh, healthcare R and D uh, for just a, a smidgen of time, and I was just literally impressed with how much computational power and storage was needed in that in that regard. So we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, okay. I did want to jump back real quick and, and say one quick thing. Uh, if I ever need to uh, have a partner for um, Grateful Dead trivia, I will make sure that I bring you because uh, it's you were correct on that date. It was 95. <laughs> That's, uh, that was like on the money on that one. Oh, so, right on. So, Good job. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. I was working on a Saturday morning, and I remember it coming in and flashing it. And I had to call my, my <sighs> buddy Fred, who was a deadhead and followed him around for years, and break the news to him. And uh, that was <laughs> oh, amazing. Man. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was not uh, a good day. Definitely. Not a good day. All right. No, it wasn't. Well, um, um, I, I did want to talk about. So, um, you and I both share uh, healthcare, but I think that's where it deviates because um, most of the healthcare experience that I had. Uh, had to deal with um, uh, patient care, uh, you know. Um, in in your case, it's prior to that. It's uh, research and development, um, uh, you know. Which I, I, I am. I'm always just amazed at this research and development because it takes so much uh, resources and and so much pieces. And and I, I want to talk about the. Uh, um, earlier resource requirements and then how you're handling these resource requirements going into um, this kind of next phase uh, of, um, of where we're headed, which is uh, a lot of this, um, a lot of these, a lot of our apps, a lot of our pieces have moved to the cloud in some degree. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, for organizations that still require a lot of storage and, and uh, backup and stuff, uh, the, you know, the options are limited. And uh, and it gets really dicey about where you move this uh, data, depending on how much computational power it needs, how how many reads and, and access rights and stuff that you need to have at, to it. So there's a lot of a lot that goes into it, at least from a storage angle. But th- that's just one aspect. So right. Right. if you could walk us through um, the challenges that you face uh, f- uh, from a infrastructure design standpoint. Uh, network design standpoint um, in the R and D space. I think that would help at least jumpstart the conversation uh, and 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 let our let our listeners understand kind of where you're coming from. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the Center for Translational Immunology is sort of a 
we're, we're sort of in an enviable position wherein um, if you're a principal investigator, and let's say you're in rheumatology, just for grins, uh, and you come into the medical center or any sort of medical institution, and you are a team of one, or even if you have a technician, generally you're vying for grants, right? You're, you're trying to get funded somehow, some way whether that's through the National Institutes of Health, the NIH, which is where we get most of our funding, or you can get grants from the Army, you can get grants from, um, you know, the Robert Woods Foundation or, you know, some sort of foundation. Um, you, you can come in and you have all these, these great scientific, uh, you know, theories and hypotheses um, that you need to, uh, you know, you need to put to paper, so to speak. Uh, you're relying upon what the university or the institution can provide for you in terms of laptop, Wi-Fi, hardware, uh, networking. So the Center for Translational Immunology, we're able to pool a lot of our grant money and resources to kind of uh, provide um, tools that are above and beyond what the university will provide. Now, in terms of the network and the infrastructure, we're in one of the older buildings on campus. Now, keep in mind that Columbia University is 325, I think, years old. But up at the medical center, our building was built in the mid-60s. Um, so the networking infrastructure, while it had been updated in the late 90s, it's about to undergo a pretty extensive network upgrade now. Now, that is all incumbent upon the university, which then means that I am reliant upon their work schedule and their funding to be able to uh, provide faster network speeds for all my users. The same for the Wi-Fi. That's all incumbent upon the university to do it. Now, with the with you, COVID, yeah. You, sorry to interject here, but do you get a, a say in um, in the budget and you know what they should be preparing for the prior years? And that's a yeah, that's setting a, a roadmap. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm one of six members on the Tech Leadership Council for the Medical Center, uh, and we meet every Monday to talk about shared challenges and and just for a little bit of uh, background for the the community of the, of the medical center and for the listeners, the medical center at Columbia has certified IT groups or CITGs. And what that means is if you are a division or a department, again, say rheumatology or, uh, you, you know, microbiology or in immunology, you will have dedicated IT people that know your challenges, what applications you need, what sort of storage resources you need. Um, so, um, the Tech Leadership Council takes all of that information from those CITGs and then dispels that to the CIO and CISO uh, and the deans and the vice presidents and such. So before COVID, we had a massive budget for like a 7 or $8 million infrastructure upgrade for the network. Since COVID happened and now people are back, uh, fewer people are back on campus. It's been pared back. But my understanding in the last conversation I had was that my building, which is the William Black building, is about to undergo... Um, pretty extensive network upgrade, new switches, new lines, that sort of stuff, new Wi-Fi. So in terms of that, that that's what I can rely on them to. I, I rely upon the medical center to provide that infrastructure for me. I'm fortunate where I don't have to do all that stuff itself. Um, but again, we're at their whim and, and, and at the, the will of the university. So if you come in as a young PI uh, and you join the CCTI, you're kind of uh, in a good position because you have sort of this startup funds that you can tap into to get the microscope you need, to get the laptop you need, to get the desktops that you need for your lab. 
um, other members come in, other principal investigators come in, and they they came from you know this way John Hopkins or from Stanford, and they bring four or five people with them, and they get to transfer their grant money over to them. Nice. And so they nice. get yeah yeah they get to fund almost uh, a lot of what they need, microscopes and such. Uh, now to get to the meat of your question, um, as I mentioned earlier, you know researchers just like patients have discrete needs. So when this is where I, I, I kind of use my journalistic skills is I will meet with the PIs one-on-one and, and spend a fair amount of time with them and see what they're doing, at least as far as I can understand the science and how my team can better support them um, and maybe what they would want to do. Like if they, if they need a uh, flow cytometry analysis, we get this application. Um, if they need to do, uh, you know, high resolution imaging while well, there's a core down the hall that does it. You know, we do a lot of cells, but you know, there might be somewhere else on campus to help find that. Um, in terms of data storage, we started off in 2010 and we had, I remember it was 620 some odd gig of data. Now we're well over 50 plus terabytes of data. And I am in the process of moving everything into AWS. I have my containers set up. I have my S2 buckets uh, and, and, and S3 buckets. And um, I'm moving everything into that in a secure channel because, you know, we're governed by HIPAA compliance. Right. Um, so we, ha- we can't let any of that stuff get outside. Um, and I might ramble here, so just put a pin in me anytime you want. Um, but <laughs> Don't worry, I will. <laughs> yeah, right, right on. The data itself... Um, you know, we need to hold on to that for three years uh, because of, uh, you know, federal regulations. Um, so, look, actually, let me ask you a question about that, yeah. because I know in certain regulations, if you're dealing with, and I don't know if this translates over to R&D, I think it might, though, um, if you're dealing with uh, any research that has to deal with um, uh, people that are uh, under the age of 18, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, I know the requirements for retention differ, uh, in that, in that case. And also not only is it a, um, I, I think there's some, also some state requirements as well on top of that. Well, there are uh, parental consent that you need to get, uh, for instance, we will take, um, we will ask, uh, patients for tissue samples particularly when it comes to getting an organ transplant. If someone's getting a kidney taken out and they're getting a new kidney put in, we will take tissue samples from both the the, the, the donor kidney, excuse me, and the, the, the kidney coming out of the patient that the patients have to sign off on, uh, the parents have to sign off on. Um, uh, I guess fortunately for me, I don't run into that. I don't have to worry about, you know, uh, uh, clinical data and clinical patient records because we don't deal with it. Um, we do deal with pre-published research data. So, uh, and we do deal with other sensitive data when it comes to, uh, you know, mice and other animals that we use in our studies. Um, so while HIPAA doesn't necessarily comply to that, we uh, uh, apply to those that data, it is very sensitive data. And the medical center is hammered by other states and other actors, let's say. Uh, for every minute of every day, mm-hmm. uh, trying to get into our network to steal that data, to not just get social security numbers. I, you know, I, I give my colleagues at New York Presbyterian 
And those in Colombia that run clinical operations, a lot of credit because they are hammered day in and day out for people trying to get PHI and our personal health info. Yep. Identifiable information. So, um, yeah, I believe that you're right about that, that you do have to hold on to that data a little bit longer. Um, but again, what's fortunate for me is that the data that the clinical data that we do deal with is all in our large EHR system, Epic, uh, which we mentioned, I mentioned earlier to you and beforehand. Um, so that is all under the stewardship of other teams. I don't have yeah, to. And for anybody that hasn't worked in, uh, in healthcare, um, Epic is, uh, one of, you know, and there's a, there's a couple out there, but, uh, probably one of the biggest, um, uh, uh um, solutions that hospitals use most, most, most often, uh, when, uh, dealing with patient care and putting all that information in charting, uh, um, you know, uh, putting into a case, all that type of, uh, fun little stuff that, uh, um, medical professionals need to do and store all what, that data, looking up records, you know, yep. Um, we had we had 26 uh, homegrown and uh, various EHR systems before Epic came in. Uh, just as a quick example, uh, organ transplant uh, surgeons had to use three different applications just to store uh, pathology right. results, patient data, and images of the organs themselves. And now they have one. Yeah. There's a, it is, these big EHR systems actually did um, uh, help from a standpoint of uh, um, allowing patients to be able to get that information uh, a lot easier. Um, but it was, it was no, uh, it was quite a project for anybody that's gone through it. Um, oh, anyone switching an ER system, it's like, uh, um, you know, uh, probably on or higher the level than uh, uh, switching your ERP. Right. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a pretty, pretty vast, uh, solution. Um, it also takes just as long to train the people, the users, the nurses, the clinicians, how to use the application almost as long as it takes to bring it on. No doubt. I, it's funny, but I've seen, I, I've seen, uh, um, nurses turn tech just to, <laughs> just to implement these solutions. And actually they get like, they, they're a nurse. And all of a sudden, they turn into a um, a technician, and now they're a now they're a super user, and and they and they work, in, you know, in between those two. Um, yeah. And one other thing I wanted to mention is that you know in these EHR systems, the challenge for a lot of uh, you know drawing out information out of these records is uh, natural language processing. You know, there'll be a memo field where a doctor could put copious notes in. And detailed notes, or a nurse could put them in with a memo field that that the application doesn't collect. So the challenge then can be for a data warehouse how to extract that information out um, so that it is accurate, but it doesn't allow anyone on the other end that doesn't have the right to see that PHI or PII. Yeah. For instance, the doctor in the memo field could put, you know, uh, you know uh, James is a 51-year-old non-Hispanic male that had a liver transplant, uh, comes from Connecticut, blah, 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 et cetera. You want to know what his blood type was, what his reaction was, what medicines he was on, if it's not in the application for some reason. But you don't want to know his name. You don't want to know where he lives. So that's a big challenge that uh, the, the, the De-identification is always a, a big challenge and reporting too, because you, you mentioned two pieces on that. I, how do I, de how do I de-identify the data so I can get the statistics to help with the research? Right. But the, the second one is how, how do I pull uh, um, free form text 
and be able to sift through it and get the information I need if I, if it's not put into an actual field, right? That's another huge piece on there. I think there are some technologies that exist now that may help with that, but uh, still, it's a lot of computational power, a lot of uh, um, a lot of reporting needs to pull that pull that in. Yeah, that's, that's true. You know, um, I, I I I I want to jump into this because I don't want to forget it, and I and I and. Uh, and I actually think that this is kind of a good segue to do that. Um, being the fact that you're, uh, ha- you come from a journalist background, um, one of the things I saw that was really exciting in, uh, in your LinkedIn is that uh, you were talking about your user experience writing, which I have a, a lot of, uh, um, it makes me really excited because one of the items that I end up dealing with so much, um, no matter where I work, is the user experience um, and identifying what their journey is, how they see it through their eyes, how IT is shown through their eyes, you know, and what their experience is going to be, and then tr- and then uh, um, finding out what the actual experience is and trying to fix those too. Um, but this concept of uh, this user experience writing, I want to know how you implement that into your. Um, uh, in, in your field, uh, you know, and and how that comes across, and and, and maybe what that um, how that helps your uh, um, you know IT in the R and D field. Uh. Yeah, so I mean, the first thing is simply asking questions, right? Like, uh, I have I can't tell you how many uh, researchers, postdocs, scientific. Uh, you know, advisors and such that come in, students come in, um, who are these brilliant, brilliant scientific minds, uh, brilliant overall. I mean, they, they, you know, they can play uh, a concerto, you know, uh, Paganini, you know, whatever, violin concerto or whatever, uh, you know, with their eyes closed, uh, and they can, you know, hypothesize about how T cells are going to react with a certain um, blood cell or something. And then it comes to uh, a Windows box. And they're stymied, other than using the mouse around and, and, and learning how to use Word, right? Yep. And it, 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 I say to them, I, uh, I, have a, I have an extensive IT orientation with everybody that comes on, regardless of their experience. Um, and I, I ask them straight out, so what are you hoping to, uh, to achieve here? Um, what are your challenges with your computers? And uh, you know, are you reticent to use them because you don't understand them? or you're afraid you're going to break something or you just don't know enough because you, all you've ever done is uh, spend time on an Apple, which, you know, admittedly, Apple is great, but they're hard, they're hard to break into, right? Uh, a, a, a Windows computer, you can know enough about the Windows computer to get yourself into a lot of trouble, right? Because it's open wide. Um, so I will explain to the users the reorientation, both uh, first with an email and a document, uh, like a, a, a cheat sheet I use and tell them, here's how I approach things. Now, let's have a conversation about how my team can better suit uh, what your needs are. Because the last thing I want to do is find out that someone is um, using an application that's not sanctioned, because then that means I'm not doing my job well. If if, if I find somebody's using Dropbox, for instance, which is verboten (laughs) on campus, because we don't have a business associate agreement with it, it means that we're not doing something properly. Yep. Uh, so when it comes to explaining 
protocols, the usage cases, all that sort of stuff. Um, I try to make it as palatable in my explanations and in my documentation as possible. And I think that's what you're getting at. Yeah. With the writing is, you know, you can put a white paper out, you could put an explanation out, you could put a protocol out that says, you know, know, here are the strict limits on everything that we do. But what I actually try to do is put in real use cases. Um, I have a documentation for our, uh, our freezer inventory application, which, uh, tracks everything that we have in freezers. Is that, is that, uh, is that named Friesel? <laughs> you know, that would be a good one. I should, I should, I should tell you off that. Yeah, you're right. Um, maybe that's what I was thinking of. Uh, there you go. Maybe that's where we're at. Yeah. That. Um, <laughs> the, the freezer app we have, it, you know, it, 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 it helps you track all your tissue samples, your chemical products, your antibodies, whatever it is down to the millimeter, how many vials you have until it expires, all that sort of stuff. And in the man, in the in the in the five or six page guide that I have for people on how to use it, I give them real case examples which have happened with us. Wherein, again, because our building is older, when the emergency power cuts out on a circuit, I'm sorry, when the when the power cuts out on the circuit and the freezer and the alarm system is on that same circuit, the emergency power doesn't come on. The only time emergency power comes on is if the entire building loses juice. So I explained to them with, you know, a real, real-time email, like snapshots of an email and an alert system from back in 2015 and then another one from late last year, or early last year, actually. Uh, the, the alert system telling the technician, freezers are down, um, here's how to use this app. You know, you, you have to get in there to um, get to your samples before they defrost and move them out. So I like to use real-time examples. I like to just keep things conversational. Um, and it makes me feel more comfortable because when I talk to a scientist and they start getting into the nitty gritty of their science, you know, I, I lose, I st- you know, I always try to stay on target, which is my favorite, one of my favorite quotes from the original Star Wars, stay on target. I say that to stay my on kids. target. Yeah. Um, I try to stay focused on what they're talking about, but I lose the thread pretty quickly. I don't want that to happen with me and my team. When we explain to them what's happening or the changes that are coming, for instance, when I'm, I'm moving all the data into AWS, I'm explaining almost every step of the way what I'm doing and what they can expect. Um, and there's nothing, I will have a conversation with anybody about any sort of technology they want to bring on to the, into the center or anything that they're having a problem with that they think just doesn't serve their purposes. Uh, you, you can't go wrong with just staying on the front lines, getting to know people, getting to know their challenges. I mean, in this realm, it's, it's, the, it's the first and foremost thing. Again, I go back to the discrete needs that the researchers have. Someone that studies influenza uh, needs to study the actions of specific cells. Someone that studies uh, you know, aging needs to study protein markers and, and, and DNA sequences and stuff like that. So they have different uh, tools that they need to to accomplish their science. You know, you um, you mentioned front lines, and that's a um, another piece that you you have actually written on your LinkedIn, where you were talking about um, you know technology professionals, no matter what their title is, you know they need to. And I'm paraphrasing here, but it's close. It's close enough, <laughs> right? They need to stay close to the front lines, right? And um, 
I, let's elaborate on that for a while, for a minute. Like, um, why? And I agree with you, by the way. <laughs> I agree with you. They definitely need to stay close to the front lines. But why is that the case? If you could uh, tell our listeners why it's so important, uh, no matter uh, what title you carry, right, that you stay close to the front lines and understand what's going on, uh, I, I think I think it, it would be beneficial. Sure. It, it, it's it's a matter of. Uh, first and foremost, um, providing your customers with the best solutions, your customers, even in the case of Mondo researchers. But just as importantly, I know the challenges that my team are, are running into day in and day out. Um, if, you know, the application that we partnered with, um, years ago to keep track of our, our mice, col our mouse colony, is no longer sufficient because the guys, uh, my technicians are hearing from the lab members. Um, I tried to do X, Y, and Z in this application and it just isn't working or uh, it's too clunky or the learning curve is too steep. Um, and I start hearing that back from my technicians. They say, oh, no one uses this application. Well, that's important for me to know because then I know, okay, we have a big challenge on our hands and we need to address this because um, the application that we're spending a lot of money on isn't solving anyone's problem. Um, but more importantly for me is when something comes in, uh, you know, it's an analysis application. It's a, an imaging, uh, an image acquisition application. Um, being part of the purchase, uh, the evaluation, and ultimately the training helps me because I can talk that shop with the scientist and, and I in turn know how better to support the application just from me. Like I, I could, I could talk to someone in the hallway that says, Hey, you know, that halo microscope we just spent $75,000 on and this application that it runs is, you know, it's, it's having a problem with, you know, uh, active directory logins. I could say, yeah, I think I know exactly what it is. I remember through the training and through the settings where we may go to fix that. Uh, I'll get someone on that or maybe I'll just go help you with myself. Um, it's also just, it's just more exciting. To, to be part of that stuff, right? Like, I'm not going to necessarily get under anyone's desk and help them unplug network cables, you know, and see if that's what the problem is. Let me send someone else to do that. But I actively, because I, I enjoyed learning about IT so much in the environment that I was, uh, you know, sort of uh, taught it in. Uh, and the two, two individuals, again, uh, Doug and, and Tom, those guys back in the day that taught me everything. I had such a good time that I feel like um, I could I could also teach other people uh, sort of the same methods and the same have the same fun with it that I did and and I think that when you when you get to something as let's say with it's SharePoint or even Outlook and I go to someone and I could say well look what you can do in the in the options here you know um, people you know scientists when I see a scientist's mind get blown because they're like you're a genius I'm like no I'm not a genius <laughs> I just I've just gone to file options probably a hundred times because I've had to fix my own problem. It, um, yeah, it is, it is a remarkable, uh, thing. Um, when, you know, you look at the stuff you do and, and you do it every day and you don't think anything of it. Right. Um, and then when you try to explain it to other people, you know, <laughs> sometimes you see their eyes gloss over and then you have to kind of use the use case scenarios use analogies and stuff to be able to help them understand the, those pieces. 
And you, then you kind of kind of get a, a good understanding of why it's so difficult for um, end users, uh, consumers, uh, customers, whatever we want to, however they're, you know, uh, you know, their relationship yeah. is with us uh, to explain their problems and what's going on. I mean, especially if you, you know, hey, I have this specific microscope and I need it to go down to this specific you know, setting. And it, when it gets to that setting, uh, I go to take a picture, it's blurry. And I don't know why it's only that one. And you're like, okay, <laughs> you know, well, let's just start kind of working on the troubleshooting piece. You don't have any idea of what this, uh, you know, what they're talking about at the moment, but you do know how to fix and work through uh, um, different uh, computer issues, regardless of where they are in the array of, I mean, some are more challenging than others and everything. And some of them are, uh, uh, you know, I've seen some really challenging problems be originate right out, right on the help desk, uh, and then turn into massive projects. Uh, you know, and that, that's, I think would be another reason why staying close to the front lines is a great thing. Cause then you can kind of, uh, control that end user experience and, and shape it to, uh, actually be more strategic. Right. That's exactly um, it. And I was going to say, and also, you know, when you go to in front of a board, um, when you're in like a position such as mine, or if you're a CIO or CISO, and you go before a board or the dean, you have active knowledge about the challenges that the IT team is having. You can give them specifics that, well, we're, we're, we're spending a lot of money, uh, you know, with help desk calls uh, because the, you know, password renewal system isn't working the way it should be, or it's not intuitive, or there are too many options. Uh, or it's the timeout is too short, things like that. Like I can see all that stuff and go there and say, well, look, here are the infrastructure changes we need to make. And in fact, in fact, like I was saying earlier, uh, I'm part of the technology leadership council at the medical center, Columbia University Irving Medical Center. And we make uh, suggestions continually to the upper echelons of the university based upon what the, uh, our, our, our frontline tech uh, users, uh, support staff are, are running into. Um, and we're making, you know, suggestions about you know, like in-house Microsoft Office specialists. Uh, because if you've ever used Microsoft uh, O365, which we've hitched our wagon to, and I find it to be really useful, there's a lot there that it, we could, it could do a lot more than we're actually using it for. Mm -hmm. But, yeah. you know, you need to be able to convince the upper teams, of the upper, again, the echelons of the university, like there's value here. We're not just spending money. Like it's not just a cost center. IT is not a cost center anymore. It is a value-added department and division. And these people that are doing um, doing the, the the legwork for IT and bringing in the technology. When you break it all down, you know what we're doing is we're providing the researchers and by proxy the patients much better service. And um, and, and what's more is when you. When you apply for a grant, um, and you can uh, you know, put in your grant proposal uh, the sorts of cutting edge or sort of you know um, viable, let's say standardized or um, you know, gener I don't want to call it generational, but technology that you've had and is proven over time, the graders at the NIH and other uh, foundations will look at your grant proposal and say, you know what? It looks like they can do more with the money. So by that, you're more likely to get a higher score and more likely to get the grant. Very nice. So make, making it known to the university that the more money you put into IT and the more value you, you put onto it, the more you're going to get back.
so um, we're going to, in a minute, we're going to jump to our last segment, right? But before we mm-hmm. go into that, you touched on something. It, 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 uh, and, it, it, and honestly, it reminded me of when I was first, when I first jumped on my first podcast with Phil <laughs> interviewing me. Um, and, you know, uh, we talked about IT not being a cost center. Right. And I was pretty adamant about it uh, um, because at the time I was doing some changes to um, uplift IT uh, at, at another another spot. And the importance of this is really is really crucial, especially when you're in healthcare, uh, when you're in finance, when you're in any of the um, fields that require additional security requirements. <clears throat> um, healthcare can no, can't be. A cost center, and if anybody is truly going in there with that mindset, if there are business leaders that have a mindset that IT is a cost center, uh, they are going to end up um, getting hacked. They're going to end up with a breach. They're going to end up making shortcuts that are just not going to uh, um, ultimately make the long best long term decisions. Um, long term. Uh, um, executives with vision need to treat their IT departments not as a cost center, but like as you mentioned, a strategic value add uh, because that's what they can do. And not only that, if utilized properly, and I think you'll agree with this, Michael, uh, they can actually reduce costs in other areas. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? And you mentioned identifying uh, applications that are no longer in use. Working with the um, you know uh, the people on the front lines to identify uh, options to increase increase productivity and and different pieces of that that mindset needs to permeate a bit Absolutely. into the into the bit. Now um, I do want to move on. By the way, I I could speak to Michael for hours and hours and hours. So Michael, <laughs> Same here. Just so you know, you're always welcome to come back here. Just let oh, me know and say I gotta go. I gotta I gotta talk to you about some more stuff because I would love to do. Uh, I, I want to know when you migrate this stuff up to AWS. What I want to uh, I want to have you back because I want to talk about your your data migration strategy. I want to talk about the data data classification. Strategy Absolutely. used and all, all these different pieces. So I would love to have you back. Um, but we're not done yet. It's IT okay. crystal ball time, right? Where we talk about the future of IT. Everyone knows at this point, uh, um, AI is not allowed in the conversation. That's here. It's present, right? Uh, okay. <laughs> unless, unless there's a future state that you want to talk about. Um, but, um, and there might be, and that's fine. So, um, but I, what I want to do is, uh, since we have you here, I would love to talk about the future of IT in research and development, right? Mm-hmm. I, uh, I think that this is, is really the area, um, uh, uh, that we want to look at with the, all the pieces. We all know what happened a couple of years ago and it lasted several years and, and, uh, and it all impacted us and research and development. A ton of money went into research and development to uh, find uh, um, uh, ways to fix that, that solution. Okay, well, now we're coming out of it. Still money popping in, uh, uh, maybe in a tougher climate, tougher environment. But where are we going? Uh, are we going to be able to stay ahead? Are there things coming down the pike that we should be aware of from a, a you know a technological standpoint, IT standpoint? I think... I think despite the challenges that we had over the last few years, I think that um, I think the broad consensus is that I don't want to say IT saved the world, <laughs> but it did save a lot of businesses. Right? We 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 came, we we rose to the challenge, 
um, everybody could still communicate. Everybody could still compete. Everybody could still, uh, for the most part, continue their research unabated. Um, in, in my terms, I think what I see coming down is a lot more. I, I don't see virtual reality as being a benefit to the boardroom. I just don't see people going into that. I, I see it as virtual modeling. Um, I see virtual mice. I see virtual primates. Um, I see virtual human systems where I think that, and in fact, there's a, there's a, a 3D model now that some of the surgeons use that um, can give you sort of a sense of, uh, you know, uh, how to open someone up and, and get in there wow. and, and do some, yeah, some work on the vena cava, some of the more sort of uh, surface items. This is uh, from conversations I've had with some of the surgeons. It's like, uh, uh, it's like virtual operation. Yes, exactly. I was never good at that game. I would always go and hit either. the buzzes. Like, That's why I didn't become hand. a surgeon. Two shaking hands, right? I can't yeah. do it. And also the anxiety of getting that buzz was just way too much. <laughs> uh, and there was a, on an aside, there was a game for, I don't know if you remember, in television. It was uh, kind of the, the opposite to Atari. There was Atari, there was ColecoVision, and there was one from Mattel called Intellivision. And they had this really, really interesting application that was like, it was a human body and you had to drive a little ship down. You had to blast, uh, you know, blood cells and you had to clear out blockages and all that sort of stuff. It does stuff. sound familiar, actually. Yeah, uh, you can find it on YouTube. Um, but that's what I see. I, you know, I think that, um, you know, some of the, the dental medicine and, and I'm, speci I'm specifically speaking about, you know, I, uh, medical research now, um, the dental medicine uh, group at our university has like these, these, in, these, these chairs that can measure people's heart rates. So you can see when someone's gaining anxiety about an operation that they're undergoing, okay, wow. maybe they need, maybe they need a little bit more gas, or maybe they just need a calming presence, right? Maybe they need, uh, you know, someone to, to just take a step back. So, um, so they're diving into epigenetics. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that's, uh, it is really paying off. Uh, and, and what's interesting is that the dental patient, the dental students are learning right from that, from the get go, all that sort of stuff. Wow. Um, yeah. So the, the reliance upon technology there is going to be heavy, but I think it'll make them um, better dentists, for instance, uh, uh the surgeons, um, you know, what I've had discussions with is, is there a way that we can build a virtual mouse model that, that operates um, with uh, blood flow, with, you know, um, uh, exhalation and inhalation, just like a real mouse would? Uh, can, we, can we use, I hate to sorry, say it, but can we use uh, AI to help manufacture this device? Uh, this, this, I'll this allow model? it. <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> That's my one free pass. And... Um, and, and then by that proxy, instead of, you know, spending money or, you know, the resources on actual mice, can we develop this into, um, you know, a, a genetically modified virtual mouse? Things like I that think sort that's, of I think are coming down. I, that's amazing, actually, because um, uh, I, you know, I would personally love to see us, uh, you know, move past having to, to having a test on, uh, on animals. But um, yeah, sure. I think that uh, um, you know, that's as you get the technology and as you get that, uh, um, you know, you, you're able to kind of yeah, start power. to knock down some of these things that like, wow, well, now we don't have to do this. Not only from a, um, you know, from a just, you know, the smiley, cute, cuddly, but also like it saves money and it saves costs and resources and all this other uh, items on there too. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's a, if you're using a virtual model, I mean, you could just use it over and over again, stop it, reload it. There's a time savings uh, involved in that. You can right. save multiple versions 
and yeah. play around with different ones and go back to them. Customize it the way you want and see how it would operate. I mean, that's part of personalized medicine, right? Is is getting into the nitty gritty of how uh, you know uh, 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 you know um, the 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 mouse model itself uh, could be changed so that you can target let's say diabetes, if you can induce cancer or diabetes in a small mouse in, in its population, then you can target that mouse for um, immunological uh, treatments mm-hmm. rather than trying it out on, you know, 10,000 humans and seeing what happens. That's a, no, that's a great, I, I, that's a, <laughs> that's a really interesting uh, uh, take and look on that. And I, I think that's a fantastic idea. Um, I would love to see that come into fruition, right? Uh, wh- yeah. Whistle mouse model coming to a, Coming to a compu, uh, a compu center soon, or a micro center soon. <laughs> Brought to you by Fiesel. Brought to you by Fiesel. That's what it was, Fiesel. <laughs> Fiesel. Fiesel mouse model, yeah. <laughs> Whizzle, I know, I, I think you made a new one. It was Whizzle and Fiesel. And, and like I said, you better rush to get these things uh, uh, trademarked before this goes As in the air. Speak. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Whizzle and Fiesel. Uh, you know, them, uh, you know, <laughs> the main names will be bought right after this. So oh they don't already exist. If they do, we're going to drive some traffic your way. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> well, um, yeah. nerds, this has uh, been Michael Moore. I've been hosting this podcast for Dissecting Popular IT Nerds. Um, I've been here with Michael Fauché, Director of Informational Tech, sorry, Information Technology for the Columbia Center of Translational Immunology. A lot, of, a lot of words there. I, I ran out of... Oh, I ran out. Next um, time we chat, just you can just say CCTI. <laughs> I should have said that from so, the beginning. <laughs> so CCTI. Now he gives me that. Uh, he gives me that thing. <laughs> Michael, absolute pleasure having you on, and I want to have Same you here. And so just message me when you're uh, um, when you're ready to talk some more, and and we can do that. Thank you so much. You got it. My pleasure. It was good speaking with you, Mike. Have a good day.